Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Indefensible Plants Podcast, the official podcast of indefensibleplants.com. What's up? This is your host, Matt. Welcome to the show. How is everyone doing this week? I am doing phenomenal because my guest today is someone whose work I have looked up to for a very long time. You may have seen his name in the book, The Wild Trees. Joining us is Dr. Steve Sillett. He studies tall trees. You may be most familiar with his work on redwoods, but he also includes giant sequoias, dug firs, eucalyptus. If it's a tall tree, he has a vested interest in it. And today we're talking about the biology and ecology of these organisms and why they're so special and what he has learned over years of studying them. This is an amazing conversation. I can't thank him enough for taking time to talk with me. So let's just jump right into it. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Steve Sillett. I hope you enjoy. All right, Dr. Steve Silla, it is so great to have you on the podcast. I've been a huge fan of your work for a long time, but for those who haven't heard about your work, let's start off with an introduction. Tell everyone a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Well, I'm a professor at forestry department at Cal Poly Humboldt, and my main interest is in tall trees and forests. I began studying old growth forests when I was a student at Reed College up in Portland, Oregon, back in the 80s. And then I went and did some under or some master's degree work at University of Florida, where I worked in a cloud forest. Nice. Um, then I came to back to the Pacific Northwest, and I went to Oregon State University, and I studied uh, old growth Douglas fir forests again, looking at lichens that live in the canopy of these forests that are very poorly represented outside of the old growth. And we were trying to figure out how we might be able to get them back into the landscape because they have important ecological roles. And then I um, saw a job opportunity here at Humboldt in the biological sciences department back in 95, I think, and was fortunate to get that job. And so I started teaching botany. And then my interests really shifted away from the, the things that grow on trees to the trees themselves, because I was studying the, the epiphyte communities aloft in these trees while we were climbing them and measuring them. And then I became more and more interested in in the trees and so what was it 2007 or 8 i shifted over into forestry and that's where i am today nice it's a great journey and you've done a lot within the trees themselves but also looking at the trees but what i really admire about your work is the unique perspective you bring to the approach to studying them you climb them and you climb among the world's if not the world's tallest trees so is that a skill you just always kind of had and it came with you and it was just convenient to put to the system or is it skill that you kind of had first and then you went, oh, there's interesting things going on up here? Well, I when I was at Reed, I was really interested in organic chemistry. So I spent a lot of time in the laboratory and I used to climb the trees around campus and in the area in Portland there around the campus that just as a stress relief thing. <laughs> nice. And uh, I, I turned out I was pretty good at it and really enjoyed just jumping around from branch to branch and kind of ridiculously dangerous things without any ropes back in the day. And then <laughs> eventually figured out that in order if I'm going to keep doing this and survive, I'm going to need to learn how to use some ropes. So um, I worked with a guy named Bill Dennison, who was at Oregon State. And I went out to the H.J. Andrews Forest with him. And uh, I guess it was 1987 or eight. And he showed me a few tricks. And I picked up a lot from loggers as well as tree surgeons. Um, and then, of course, the, the techniques continue to evolve. And arborists, friends of mine, have taught me a lot. And so it's just been it's been an interesting journey just getting the skill set down so you can work safely up there. But I think, you know, because we were some of the first people to really look at the what's living up in the tall redwood forests, just about everything we found initially was new. And there was so much going on up there that it was pretty apparent early on that we had a lot more work to do. So, you know, it's just part of the journey is just gaining access to the canopy. And then the question is, what are you going to do up there besides just enjoy the view? <laughs> right. And I think a lot of people who think about canopy research, they think, oh, yeah, this is this would be so much fun. And, you know, there is fun aspects of it. It's also a lot of fear involved. Mm -hmm. uh, climbing trees can be very dangerous. Um but really, if you're going to understand what's happening in a forest, you have to understand the trees as a whole. And the stuff that we were seeing high above the ground in these trees was just mind-blowing. 
I mean, soil accumulations with shrubbery, <laughs> even other trees growing up there and salamanders and all kinds of cool stuff of living in the canopy. And we realized that these, these old trees have a lot to teach us and they're really becoming quite scarce on the landscape. And so what we've tried to do is speak for the trees since they can't speak for themselves and tell about their journey because they're, you know, these are organisms that live for millennia yeah. and most of our managed forests cycle and over a period of decades. So a lot of the trees aren't even allowed to get beyond the juvenile stage before they're cut in, in, in industrial forestry. And there's a lot more that these trees can do. And that's one of the things that we're trying to figure out is how can we modify management so that we can promote some of these other values. That's excellent. And and really important, too, to not just be the stop halt. That's either we don't touch these or nothing at all. It's It's working within the framework that we're up against a lot of the times. But this is just my temperature of the whole big tree sort of enigma here is I feel like for a lot of their history, they were admired, maybe cut coveted for the resources they could provide or just the admired for the beauty and majesty that a giant forest of redwoods or sequoias or dug firs can create. But is it really that lack of people being able to get up into the trees that kind of made them a mystery? I get the sense that for a long time, it was just kind of like, these are big, they're really cool. We don't know much about them. Well, I think there was a perception early on that we knew enough about them Hmm. to know that they provided enormously valuable wood products. Ah. And they were valued tremendously for that. It, it, you know, there's there's things that are beyond timber. Right. There are non-timber values that that trees and forests have, and the emphasis has been on timber values. And so the landscape has been dramatically simplified by logging almost all of the primary forests. So now we have these little parks and reserves that just a few percent of the original, but they still provide a template that we can examine what is the capacity of a tree or of a forest as a whole to to perform work, to perform biodiversity services, ecosystem services. So I don't know. I think I think they're val- they were valued initially, and uh, they're still valued for those things. It's just that there's more to them than that. Right, right. And I mean, when you think of something that big that's been around on the landscape in some way for that long when you start to peel away those layers, it makes sense. But until you get up there and look, I mean, you said it yourself, there's this entire epiphytic community that starts with soil, builds up to actual other trees, living on trees, salamanders, that sort of stuff, you know, and it's those moments when you start to realize what has been lost. But the the fact that you shifted your gears more towards looking at the trees themselves in top of all of the ecosystem sort of support that's going on up there, what when did that shift really start to happen? And what was sort of the catalyst to go, we need to understand these trees as individuals and, and then sort of scale up to the ecosystem level. Well, when it, we initially examined the redwoods, um, part of the focus was just what's up there, how much material has accumulated in these crowns. And what we started to see was in order to understand the amount of material, we had to map the structure of the trees. You know, in a young forest, the trees have a very simplified and what we call model conforming structure. There's a main trunk, and there's branch systems. And most of the branches are relatively simple and linear affairs. But if you're centuries to millennia old and you've been through storms and you recover from damage, what trees do is they rebuild themselves through this process of reiteration. And over time, they acquire individualized structure. And say if the top of the tree blows out, then the appendages below the break will often ascend. And so a broken branch below the broken trunk will send up a new trunk, and then that piece of that branch becomes transformed into a limb. And limbs become these very large diameter horizontal surfaces in trees that can accumulate debris and eventually epiphytic ferns and shrubbery. And also the broken parts of the trees, you know, once you broke open the trunk, the heartwood is exposed and uh, fungi begin to slowly decay portions of this. And in species like redwood that have really decay resistant heartwood, that process takes a very long time where that wood can be broken down and eventually become a kind of a water storage Hmm. region in the crown that will be then colonized by things like vaccinium or huckleberry bushes. And so as we started to look at the distribution of epiphytic plants, ferns and shrubs and even, even trees, but also mosses and lichens and so on, 
uh, we started to see that we're not going to be able to figure out how much there is until we map the tree crowns themselves. And then in the process of mapping the crowns to scale the material that was on them to the tree total, we developed some techniques for three-dimensional mapping that were actually quite efficient. So you could go and spend a day in the tree surveying the distribution of branches and limbs and reiterated trunks, and you could build a three-dimensional model of the crown. And as we started to look at the availability of surface area, in this case, just taking the surface area of the material of the appendages, we realized that we could actually quantify volume of the wood and the amount of bark and the biomass. And then I just became obsessed with understanding these trees and trying to develop ways that people who aren't climbing and intensively measuring them could utilize this information. Like when we started working in the redwoods, there really wasn't a clear sense of, well, how many leaves do these trees have? You know, how much do these trees weigh? I mean, it's it's amazing to me that we went through and logged most of them and we didn't get this information. Right. Part of the problem was that when you fell one of these giants, they shatter, the crowns shatter, and so they can't be reconstructed. Oh, wow. And so by climbing them and clambering about in them using rope techniques, we could access them and we could build them on the computer. And in doing so, we created three-dimensional models that could be scaled to predict things like how much bark, how much wood, how much biomass, how many leaves. And then th those ultimately were used to develop allometric equations. And you mentioned those earlier. And those are simply just scaling relationships. So trees with bigger trunks tend to have more biomass. Right. Trees with wider crowns tend to have more leaves. And so we developed a series of equations that could be used by people, foresters or ecologists, to measure trees from the ground and still make reasonably accurate predictions on their size and the distribution of material in the forest. That's It's incredible to think of how little we knew and how much we lost during that time period. But to get up there, to finally be in these canopies, to really be some of the first people to actually see that structure and the complexity in the flesh, in situ, as it developed... It's got to be breathtaking. But when you talk about mapping these canopies and creating these models, they're beautiful diagrams. Some of the figures in your papers are just phenomenal. But it's just amazing to think of someone up there with a rope system trying to do it safely and counting all of these needles, all of these. What, is, what does that process look like when you're up in the tree? Are you combing every surface? Because you want to <laughs> get those models accurate, right? You want to get those equations to where that error value is, is very low. So that takes a lot of measurements, right? Yeah, man. Well, you know, it's easy enough to measure the main trunk. Sure. And actually near the ground where there's buttresses and fire scars and fire caves and burls, you have to do a three-dimensional modeling. You know, we use, these days we use an iPhone LiDAR scanner to, to build the lower trunk. But higher above the ground, you know, stretching your diameter tape every few meters all the way up is easy enough. But then you look at the distribution of appendages. And of course, some of these trees have hundreds, mm. hundreds of branches. And they're not just simple branches. There might be a limb that goes out and gives rise to a trunk that has a whole bunch of branches of its own or even other limbs with other trunks. And so you build this hierarchy. You know, and we would spend, in, in the development of these allometric equations, we spent, for some trees, the equivalent of over 30 people days aloft wow. to map them in enough detail that we could then sum up the parts and determine how many leaves they had. But it also involved some destructive sampling. So... Let's say we mapped a tree that had 500 branches. We would then remove with a handsaw very carefully a subset of those branches, usually one or 2% of them of all sizes, bag them up in the tree, lower them to the ground, spread out these tarps, and then break them down by centimeter diameter intervals with saw and using calipers to measure the bark and the sapwood thickness, and then taking the leaves and dissecting them all off the branches into a big pile and then weighing them on a hanging scale and then taking a subset of that material back to the lab and then very carefully with tweezers and razor blades removing individual leaves that could then be counted and scanned and weighed so that we could ultimately scale up all those values to the individual branches and then in aggregate the whole crown. Yeah. And now that we have these equations, we no longer have to do that level of intensive math. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad we did it while I was young and much more <laughs> agile because uh, these days it's uh, it's hard to even imagine that we did that when we're yeah. up there. It's like, oh, can you imagine if we had to map this tree? I mean, <laughs> literally some trees took days and days aloft, you know, eight to 10 hour days 
in a saddle in the tree all day Dang. measuring branches. Whew. And it's not like you're doing this just with every tree right off of a convenient path where you were able to park your car, right? Some of this took effort just to get out to these areas. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, we the initial work that we did, we, we kind of picked some superlative forests. Mm. So we wanted for the redwood, we wanted to get the places that had the tallest and the largest trees, but we also wanted to measure them redwood forests all the way from, you know, the northernmost part of California all the way down to Big Sur. So we distributed these plots in in some locations that required quite a bit of hiking to get to. And when you have all the climbing ropes and harnesses and lanyards and saws and bags, and I mean, so much material that had to be hauled in and out of the woods. It's really nice these days to know that we don't necessarily have to do all that anymore, nor does anybody else because these equations exist. Right, right. And that's what's great is out the other end of that comes very accurate, very meaningful equations that can be applied in a variety of situations. Uh, but in your instance, you know, you guys have really focused in on what does growth look like in these amazing species that are able to reach immense sizes, immense ages that are hard to fathom. And when we think of aging, it is so biased by how our species ages. And what's amazing through the equations, through all the work you've done is you're finding that these trees do things pretty different. And and some of the work, I mean, to this day, my jaw hits the floor and you go, oh man, we haven't even scratched the surface of what plants are capable of. I mean, you guys have found some really fascinating stuff. Well, you know, it, when we were getting those, doing those intensive mapping efforts, part of that involved collecting cores. You know, we dissected branch systems as well. But part of it was focusing on the trunk. And so you, you core in with an increment borer, you pull out the, 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 the dowel of wood, which is usually about as thin as a pencil or even thinner. But from in that hole, you can then stick the spoon and you can measure the thickness of the bark. And in the core that you've extracted, you can measure the thickness of the sapwood. In other words, where's the boundary between the red stained heartwood and the paler sapwood that conducts water? And what we were able to see then was not only the distribution of the tissues, but we could see annual growth rings. Mm. And the beauty of these trees in temperate forests, at least, is that they store their growth history and growth history in annual rings. And so we started looking at these cores that we were collecting initially for other purposes. And we realized, my goodness, because we've measured these trees in a three-dimensional framework, and we could take these individual growth rings distributed across the height gradient. We can then take the trees back through time in an annual increment. Hmm. So we could say if we core a tree, say at 200 feet above the ground and the core hits the center of the trunk, you know that in the year that that tree reached 200 feet, we know what year that was. <laughs> but then we can then geometrically build the model of the tree back through time. And so what we've done is we've looked at the accumulation of wood volume and from that biomass. So how much wood and biomass does the tree make at an annual increment? And then when you look some of these trees, we can take back over a thousand years at wow. annual increments. And then you can say, well, how is the tree doing during the recent drought? How much wood did it make? Well, what about that really wet year? How was it doing then? Or what happened like when, when uh, California became a state and the redwoods were beginning to be industrially logged? How were the trees that we didn't cut? How were they responding to these mm. disturbances? And you can piece this all together. The trees provide their own growth history. And if you can decipher it, then you can actually make some very important quantitative statements about their performance characteristics. But all of this is hinging on the ability to assign an annual or a calendar year to each ring. And it turns out with Coast Redwood, it's particularly difficult. Oh. And yeah, because this is a weird tree that some years, particularly towards the lower part of the trunk, they just don't make an annual ring. Huh. And so if you have, if you look at a stump of a big redwood and you try to count the rings, you could have a differences in the number of rings more than a hundred from one side of the trunk to the other. So to assign a, a, an actual year to each ring was a very big challenge. And what we found was by collecting the cores all the way up the trunk, we could bridge these gaps where the tree was doing weird stuff and we could, what's known as cross state. And Allison Carroll in my lab has been doing a lot of this work, which is called dendrochronology. And it's fascinating stuff, but it's extremely tedious mm. because you need to spend an enormous amount of time under the microscope staring at these rings. Some of these rings are super tiny, like oh, sub millimeter. Boy. 
So it's, you know, it's measuring the rings to the nearest millionth of a meter, but then also looking at their patterns of thick and thin and thick and thin and making a correlation so that you can say, yeah, this is the year 1272 with certainty. Wow. And so that's what's required to, to reconstruct their growth history. The trees store the data, but we have to interpret it. And it's a <laughs> bit of a challenge in some cases, in redwood particularly so. What's going on with the coast redwood then that it's just... Is it just that most of the growth is happening farther up the tree and that the, the, the trunk has to remain stable for size support? Like, what? why are they weird like that? Or don't we know? Well, the, you know, geometrically, the bigger the trunk, the smaller the ring. Oh. But the small ring produced on a big trunk is still an enormous amount of wood. Yeah. <laughs> so it's part of the part of it's geometric. Really big trees have small rings just because that's how much material they can lay down across that enormous circumference in a year. Uh, okay. But there are also other issues because Coast Redwood's kind of an oddball. It has a suite of characteristics that other trees don't have. It's extremely shade tolerant. So it can it can handle periods of suppression. If it's like growing up in a tall forest, a young tree can, can languish in the shade for centuries, hmm. doing barely anything. We had one tree we measured down along the Russian River. It took it a thousand years for the tree to reach 200 feet. <laughs> And then when it finally gets up a little higher, it starts to get into the light and then its growth rate can pick up again. But they can they can just dawdle on, in the wow. understory for a long time. That's phenomenal. And so when you're looking at sort of this time machine going back in time, you're also being able to compare these things across geographic areas, right? And that's what's fascinating is you've got trees, all plants really, that span a range of different Maybe not so stark if you're just kind of driving a car to and from different places, but over the years, very different climatic conditions that can add up. And and being able to have these equations with that raw data going back hundreds, if not thousands of years, you can also start answering questions of how different sort of climate zones, microclimates really start to affect how a tree performs over millennia. Yeah, and it's been really interesting looking at these geographic gradients and climatic gradients. Um, this re recent study, we, we spanned the entire native range of redwood, which is over six degrees of latitude, all the way wow. from Southwest Oregon to almost San Luis Obispo. Actually, I got a, a buddy who just sent me a note. He said he thinks he found some very old trees in San Luis Obispo. Oh, County, man. Further south than we've even looked. Get down there. <laughs> There's a huge gradient. You know, in the north we have the true rainforest. And these are places that receive more than 80 inches of annual rainfall. But as you go south and California gets drier and drier. So there's there's a huge gradient just across the native range of the species. You know, when you're at the southern end of the range, the redwoods are restricted to canyons. And as soon as you leave the creek sides, you get into chaparral. Mm. There's no more even conifers. But in the north, in Humboldt and Del Norte County, you know, you have these vast areas of redwood forest where from creek valley all the way to ridgetop it's dominated by sequoia the same thing goes as you move from the coast to inland when you get to the immediate coast actually redwoods not often well represented it's it's sick as spruce or other mm -hmm. conifers and then you go inland redwoods kind of begin to dominate pretty quickly but then you, you can go you know all the way east to napa county into some of these canyons and there's redwoods in there and they're far from the ocean wow. 50 kilometers or more from the ocean so when you look at these landscape gradients and climatic gradients, you see huge differences in the performance characteristics of, of redwood. And obviously they're growing fastest where they have the most resources, which is in the Northern rainforest. But there's been some surprisingly fast growth rates in some of the Southern redwood forests. Like for example, we measured this site in a place called the forest of Nicene Marks, which is near Santa Cruz. Mm -hmm. This was a forest that was, uh, logged off in the late 1800s. And we found with aerial LIDAR, we found a little pocket of this secondary forest that had regenerated after logging. And already some of these trees are pushing 300 feet tall. Dang. And see, these are some of the fastest growing trees ever documented. And they're at the southern end of the range, not not all the way south, but they're that's pretty far south, yeah. 37 degrees latitude. So I don't know, we've been surprised. I mean, proximity to water is a huge huge deal. If the trees have access to re to water and nutrients, they can grow very fast, even in some of these drier forests. And we had a, a site in Big Sur, mostly the real southern part of the range, which is the Santa Lucia Mountains. The redwoods are 
they're growing pretty slow compared to the ones up north. And they're really sensitive to annual variation in rainfall. But we had this one site, a place called Terrace Creek, where there's a spring-fed creek coming out of the side of the mountain. And the redwoods there showed almost no sensitivity to drought. Wow. Like, they, it was just shocking. It, they were some of the least sensitive to drought of any trees we measured. But this was like a hydrological refugium. Uh. You know, these little places where they're tucked away. You know, there's been a lot of talk about redwoods um, and climate change. And, you know, the southern part of the range is, is what we're most worried about because right. California is kind of drying out and heating up. A little bit. Uh, but, you know, there's talk about the redwood um, withdrawing from the southern portion of its range. But the thing to keep in mind is that once a redwood dominates a forest, it's not just going to disappear because it has the remarkable ability to sprout from its roots and its trunk. Yeah. Even if it's cut, they'll come back. So I have a feeling that a lot of these southern redwood forests are they're not going to disappear. They might get shorter as their top dies back in, in heat waves and so on. But I, I think the redwood component will still be there. It's a question of will they be able to expand their range? Probably mm. not so much in the south, but they might be able to maintain redwood refugia in places where they're already well represented. Well, that's encouraging. And when you think of sort of the fossil record for relatives, at least, I'm not familiar with you know, actual coastal redwood fossil records. It, it, it is a species that has gone through range expansion, contraction over time. But the, the fascinating thing is, you know, when you hear sort of the layman talk about it, they're like, well, you act like there's no redwoods left, but there's tons of forests left. They're just, you know, working for us, that sort of thing. And, and I understand that argument. But at the same time, a lot of what you're finding with these equations, with these different growth habits and, and really looking at trees over time is that the characteristics of a tree change with time, just as they do in any species that ages. But it's not just a love for old growth. It's not just a love for big trees. There's inherent value in having these massive organisms growing on the landscape in these forests. It's it's not just about having the presence per se sometimes, although it is great to know that they aren't going to wink out everywhere. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, the, the thing is, when you have a tall forest and large areas of, of tall forest, the forest can can influence its own climate. I mean, when you deforest an area, the climate will change. And we're seeing this all over the world where deforestation has, has been prominent. But in places where redwoods are very well represented in some of these larger forested areas, particularly in the north, the rainfall regime in the forest, like I'm here in Arcata, mm -hmm. and 45 minutes north in Prairie Creek Redwoods, it'll be dumping rain up there, but not here. Well, that's one of the few areas... In in the redwood range where from the ocean to inland it's all intact forest ah. so there is some some role of the forest in kind of regulating and even creating their own climatic conditions but yeah there's there's a lot of room for concern but i think the thing is that trees are not equal <laughs> small trees don't they might make a lot, a lot of wood but the wood that they make isn't necessarily durable mm. and this is a part with species that are really long lived that has been scarcely appreciated. So for redwood, when you go from the non-living outer bark in towards the center of the trunk, you go through the outer bark and then you get to the living inner bark, which conducts the sugars from the leaves to the roots and so on. Then beneath the inner bark is the vascular cambium. And that's the actively dividing sheet of cells that makes both bark to the outside and wood to the inside. Then you go inland, inward of the cambium, you get to the sapwood. The sapwood is the pale colored wood that conducts water and mineral nutrients from the roots to the leaves. But then as you go further in, you get to the edge of the functional sapwood to the, the wood that's stained red. This is the heartwood. And the stain is a toxin or a set of toxins that are produced by redwoods to resist termites and fungi. Ah. And it turns out that that red stained wood is extremely decay resistant, some of the most decay resistant wood in the world. But it takes a while for the trees to begin producing heartwood for one. Hmm. And the other is, as they age, the quality of the heartwood that they produce increases. And the amount of heart heartwood that they produce continues to increase during their lifetime. So by the time you're a thousand year old forest giant, 80 or more percent of your annual productivity is heartwood. But when you're a young tree, say in a 50-year-old plantation forest or 30-year-old plantation forest, it's less than half. Wow. The other thing 
is that the, the stain, the amount of stain seems to increase so that the, the decay resistance of heartwood of, in secondary forests is a lot less than in primary forests. Huh. So the, the bigger the tree, the, the older it is, not only does it make more wood, but it makes better wood that's more durable. And part, part of the thing with carbon sequestration is that people often mistake biomass production with long-term sequestration. I mean, if you want to produce the most biomass per unit land area, you're not going to plant trees. You're going to plant some agricultural crop. Right. I think the highest growth rate ever recorded, something like 40 metric tons per hectare per year, was in sorghum, the <laughs> sugar cane. You know, you, that, you can't have a forest make that much biomass in right. a year. But the question is, in a year later, what's the fate of the biomass that was produced? <laughs> you know, if, you, if you're a big old redwood and you make, and some of these individual trees can make a metric ton of biomass a year. A year? Yeah. Whew. In one year. That's the world record. So the thing is, what, how much of that material that they made is decay resistant? Uh. Turns out in really big trees, it's most of the material they make has very good decay resistance. The other thing we found is that the decay resistance of this heartwood varies, not just developmentally in terms of trees getting older, mm. but also vertically. So the higher you get above the ground in one of these trees, the more decay resistant is the wood, hmm. which makes some sense when you think about the part of the tree that's going to be damaged in a storm is near the top of the tree. Well, the top of the tree is where the sunlight is. That's where the leaves are. The leaves that are in the sun are all mm. concentrated in the upper crown. That's the sugar supply. And as you move down through the tree, which could be over 100 meters in some of these <laughs> trees, the sugar supply could get exhausted. Wow. So as you move down the tree, we're finding that the wood quality in terms of decay resistance diminishes. Huh. So one of the reasons that big old redwoods make such high decay resistant wood is because a lot of that heartwood is being made far above the ground within the upper trunk. Wow. Yeah. So that makes sense when really you have to peel back the layers of like, we view a lot of these trees as sort of commodities or just these sort of static pillars that aren't actual living organisms, but these are truly living, breathing organisms that have to get through hundreds, if not thousands of years of existence. And when you put it in the context of like, oh, these trees are up in the canopy, where's the most damage going to happen? What are the most important organs to protect? Then it starts to make sense. But until you measure that, I mean, yeah, it's easy to just kind of sit back on our laurels and, and rest on those and go, yeah, you know, trees, a tree is a tree, whatever. It's just big. Yeah. Well, you know, what's interesting is that when they were really logging the, the primary forest, and this was back in the, you know, right after World War II is when it really took off. There was a lot of studies of redwood. Um, well, I wouldn't say a lot, but there were some major studies of redwood wood quality. And they looked at things like decay resistance and strength and uh, various measures of wood quality. But they ignored the wood that was within the crown. Hmm. And so this so-called crown wood is the place where after trees felled, it's full of knots from all the limbs and branches, and it's not really merchantable. And what we found is that the the highest quality wood in terms of decay resistance is way in within the crown, way up there. And so it had no commercial value. Um, and so that's why the latest article, the, the term non-timber values is included there. And I, I did that intentionally because we're very concerned about carbon sequestration these days, these days and rightly so. Mm -hmm. But there's other non-timber values. And one of them is biodiversity provisioning. It turns out that you know, the upper crowns of these trees are in the wind. They get exposed to damage and allows decay organisms to enter the crown. And what the tree needs to do after a major crown failure is rebuild its leaf area. And so it reiterates and produces a whole bunch of new branches and it quickly gains a new green crown. Shorter, but mm -hmm. a big green crown. And then it begins to grow up. Well, the wood that was exposed by the breaks is now colonized by decay fungi. Well, it's also the best protected wood in the tree. And so the, the tree is able to maintain its structural integrity because it invested in decay resistance so heavily. And the, the benefit for non-timber values is there's a bunch of organisms that can utilize that slowly decaying heartwood resource. And I think I mentioned epiphytic huckleberries. They're a big feature yeah. of some of these rainforest canopies. 
Well, huckleberries, like other members of the Ericaceae, they have a special kind of mycorrhizae that's that does really well with rotting wood substrates. Hmm. So these slowly expanding pockets of decay that are caused by injury, but then the tree grows around them, they are still there. And very slowly the fungi will process them. But those chunks of decaying wood hold a lot of water, which is why the huckleberries can gain access to enormous amount of water, even though they have no connection to the terrestrial soil. And what we find in these rainforests is that the huckleberries are doing most of the flowering and fruiting in the canopy population. <laughs> so you have a lot of huckleberry on the forest floor, and they're a real pain to hike through. <laughs> but they're not doing a lot of sexual reproduction. The ones up in the treetops are. That's wow. where we see the flowers. That's where we see the fruits. And that's where the birds and the mammals are dispersing them. Hmm. But because of that slowly decaying heartwood resource, it's not just the huckleberries that can take advantage of it, but it's a whole bunch of soil organisms. And there really are arboreal soils up there. And another cool thing, the trees can root into their own rot. <laughs> so there's lots of adventitious rooting from the redwoods into these rotten pockets up within the wow. crown so they can recycle some of their own nutrients. Huh. And when we've looked in some of these soils, we see not only the roots of the redwood, we see the roots of the huckleberry. We can sometimes see roots of Douglas fir or hemlock or even other redwoods that are growing there. Little epiphytic redwoods. Wow. Pretty sweet. Yeah. But the thing is, inside those soil resources, there's tons of little critters. There's all kinds of little mites and calemolins. There's annelid worms up in there. There's these crustaceans that are usually found in freshwater streams. They're called arpacticoid copepods that live up in these canopy huh. soils. There's a lungless salamander. So there's this whole community, this perch community that lives on this resource up there that from the tree's perspective is a defect right yeah it's a broken wound <laughs> but because the tree is so well protected chemically that then becomes a biodiversity hotspot. yeah and what do you have in young forests none of that right they don't have the structural complexity and they also don't have very much heartwood at all in the upper trunk because they're just little thin trunks you got to go anyways before you get to the heartwood mm -hmm. anyway I had never really considered sort of the reservoir aspect of what was going on up there and it all coming back to that rot resistance really slowing this process down. And yeah, you think of what the Redwood understory looks like. It's it's lush. It's amazing. But it's a very competitive environment. I'm sure, you know, there's periods where no water comes through. And, and if you have that up in the canopy, I mean, where there's water, there is life. And man, that is incredible to think about. All of this going on two, 300 feet up in the air. Yeah, you know, a few years ago, several years ago now, we had these probes inserted into the canopy soils. And we've, we've measured soils aloft in the rainforest, at, you know, over a meter, meter thick of just Dang. material, almost like a peat layer. And we've stuck probes in there to look at how much water and what's its temperature regime. We also drilled into some of these pockets of decaying heartwood and put in our time domain reflectometry probes to get at the, the uh, water content. It turns out they have some of the most stable water regimes in the canopy are these rot pots. Wow. And they're also very stable in terms of temperature. The canopy soils, because they're out on the surfaces of branches, they will often dry down during the summer, mm. but not these pockets of decay. They will retain moisture. So the decay or the desiccation sensitive animals will often retreat into these rot pockets. I'll never forget. I was up this tree in Prairie Creek Redwoods one time. It was the tallest tree in the park. And I was at about 97 meters in the tree. The tree is about almost 110 meters tall. And I was moving around up there and I accidentally bumped against a dead branch. And it kind of cracked. And I was, there was climbers below me. So I was like, oh. Ooh. So I had to grab the, I had to get, grab the dead branch so I wouldn't fall on. And I had to radio down and say, hey, I'm going to be dropping a branch. I'm going to throw it to the south side, blah, blah, blah. And I jettisoned it. Everything was fine. So then I turned around and looked at the hole in the trunk where the branch came out and i look in there and there's a little salamander staring back at me <laughs> he's inside the trunk and i popped it, the branch out and there he was and wow. what did he do he turned around and went deeper inside and disappeared <laughs> he's like yeah nah <laughs> so, yeah so there's like this whole interiority of these giant yeah. trees up there that, that that people don't appreciate and of course from a from a timber product point of view none of that's of any value whatsoever right and in fact, when these trees were felled, of course, it would just shatter into oblivion on the ground and none of it would be merchantable. 
but that's why I would say non-timber values. There's lots of things that these big old trees can do just because they're, they have these resources that are pretty much absent elsewhere in the forest. Yeah, that is just absolutely remarkable. And and think about what future work looking at sort of that interior space or exploring that interior space of these rot pockets can really turn up. But man, is this something you see in other large tree species or is this truly oh, yeah. a unique feature of the redwoods? Oh, dude, we were <laughs> we were working in Australian eucalyptus down in, uh, oh, in yeah. Tasmania. Oh, man, we found some we found some amazing water features like way up in the crown of some of the biggest and tallest eucalyptus yeah. with pools of water inside. And they, they don't have nearly the decay resistance of redwood. So they don't mm. live nearly as long, but they grow fast. And they had, they have this interior stuff that the Australians, they call it mud guts. <laughs> so when the trees fall, there's like this goo inside, Ooh. but this, this goo is often completely saturated with water. And there's a couple of places we're in a tree where you look in and there's this pool inside the, the center of the tree. <laughs> and we've had this happen in redwoods and in other species of trees where we're collecting a core sample. We pull out the core and all of a sudden there's like water leaking out because <laughs> there's a storage of water in a little pocket up there. Of course, you trick quickly try to plug it up. Yeah. But it's interesting. There's, there's a lot of stuff that's kind of hidden. Right. It's not all just pure wood yeah there's a lot of stuff happening in these trees a lot of them are hollow dang and and just to think going back to what you said about the huckleberries and that specific mycorrhizal fungal interaction i mean this is truly processes going on out of sight out of mind that we just take for granted are purely restricted to the soil and and to think of like every tree as sort of its own island of potential support for i mean countless organisms especially once you get into that microscopic realm that's a that's a mind blow and a half right there it is, you know, in the upper crowns of these tall forests is where there's the light. And so the epiphytes can, as long as they have a supply of water, they can flourish. Yeah. But what we're finding in young forests is that they don't have these perch soils. They don't have these decay pockets. And so one of the things we're trying to do now is to introduce some of these older forest characteristics into younger forests. And we've mm. done some experiments where if you strategically injure a tree, can you get it to produce limbs? Can you get it to reiterate in certain ways? It's a long-term process, but it's possible to do this. Hmm. One of the things we're doing lately is we're transplanting fern mats up into the trees. Oh, um, These are trees that are designated as potential elder trees, meaning that they could allow, they, the, the, whoever is managing the forest is going to let them live out the rest of their lives. They're never going to be felled for timber. Right. So there are trees that have the potential to become elders. And in, in these crowns, we've been transplanting ferns. The ferns we collect on permit from the parks after winter storms, and they mm. sometimes they'll dislodge out of the canopy and we can pick them up off the ground and then we can move them up into the younger forest canopy to create some arboreal soils that otherwise would take centuries to develop on their own. So there's a lot we can do, I think, to take some of the lessons from the big old trees and apply them to the managed forest landscape. Yeah, I really love this idea of the potential elder trees or pets, as you had abbreviated them. But it's it's like I kind of hinted at at the beginning, You it's working with management, doing management better, because it's an unrealistic goal to say we need to stop all commercial logging anywhere, everywhere. I mean, there's a lot of private landholders that are just going to do that regardless of what we think. Um, but if there's ways we can do it better, if there's ways we can manage these forests better, and this potential elder idea is really interesting because it's saying, hey, we don't have to grab every last stem and twig and branch and trunk out there. A few of these could be sort of these legacy effect islands of those biodiversity that can then, I'm guessing, serve as sort of these nucleation points for a return of something. Yeah, exactly. You know, the thing is the commercial forest lands are often managed on a kind of a short-term rotation. Right. And so you're going in every 30 to 50 years and you're cutting down all the trees. So then you really never have forests that have more than juveniles. Mm. There's a tree that can live for 2,000 years. A 50-year-old tree is a youngster. Yeah. But the thing is, if we designate some of these trees as potential elder trees, they're, they're, they will be selected from the inventory of, among some of the most robust individuals. They can be strategically located so that you could still 
have timber operations around them, but they can be in landscape positions where they won't be injured by removal of neighboring trees or construction of roads and so on. And so they're, the thing that they could do is they could create a taller forest overall because it's a relatively small number of trees that really create the uppermost canopy. Right. And in the old growth redwood forests, it's really only a handful of trees per acre that are doing this. Wow. So in a managed forest context, you could have just a few trees per acre designated as pets that you would allow to live out their lifespan and contribute non-timber values like carbon sequestration, like biodiversity provisioning. And then these trees could be promoted. And of course, if you remove their neighbors, you're giving these potential elder trees more resources. Mm. You're giving them more light. You're giving them more access to water and soil nutrients that they're not being taken by neighboring trees. So they will benefit by having accelerated growth after timber extraction. Hmm. So in landscapes, even working for us, the potential elder tree idea has merit. And I've been talking with forest managers and there's, there's quite a bit of interest in it because then we could have a landscape that's maybe not all the trees are going to be allowed to grow back to become giants, but some, yeah. I mean, if you look at the distribution of tree height in California, as I've done, it is a miserable state mm. of affairs. You know, you can look at a whole County and like the only tall trees are in these tiny little parks and reserves. The rest of it's all short. Yeah. This is the tallest forest in the world, or it used to be. We can do better than that. <laughs> right. Even if we only have a few trees per acre that are allowed to become tall again, we should consider that as a viable approach to increasing carbon sequestration rates because the bigger the tree, the older it gets, the better, more durable wood it makes. And if they provide arboreal habitats for yeah. birds, animals, and all kinds of critters and other plants. So it's a it's a compelling idea, but it does require you to take some of the trees out of the inventory. And so a lot of times, now I want to distinguish this pet concept from just the veteran tree or the residual tree idea. Right. There's a lot of landscapes where during the first pass of log logging, they took all the merchantable trees, but sometimes they left these old beat up individuals that had, for whatever reason, defects. They might have been hollow. They had all kinds of bumpy, lumpy crappy trunk and they're not going to make good wood so they left them on the landscape and these are some of the biggest trees on the landscape these days they're veterans they're survivors of logging i'm not talking about them i mean they have their own value right. and for the same reasons but what i'm talking about is the new generation of trees that are coming up after logging designating a subset of them to become elder trees in the future and contribute these values so there's merit in that. And I think it's, you just have to take some of the growing space and allocate it for non-timber values. And the other thing that I, I've been trying to make this point to forest managers is, you know, when we've looked at, I don't know if you read the 2020 article, we looked at the growth efficiency of redwoods of different size classes. Yeah. And what we found was that the smallest trees, you know, not, not like little seedlings, but like, you know, trees that might only be five, 10 meters tall, trunk diameters, maybe less than a foot, right? They are actually growing extremely efficiently, meaning they're producing a, a lot of biomass per unit leaf, mm -hmm. but they're doing so, well, what we think is happening is through subsidy from the giants. Oh. It's almost as if the bigger trees are sending resources through roots that are subsidizing the growth rates of the regenerating trees. And in redwood, it's a species that does not rely on stand-replacing disturbances to reinitiate. They can mm -hmm. grow beneath their own shade. So in a species that lives for thousands of years, it makes sense that they would be promoting their regeneration in the absence of catastrophic disturbances through below-ground linkages and wow. subsidies. So let's just say we have a landscape where we're going to manage for timber production, but we're going to leave some of these trees to become elders. Right. Those trees could actually have a positive effect on regeneration in the portion of the forest that's not directly shaded by their crowns hmm. they could be contributing resources via roots to promote the growth of the regenerating cohort wow so there's a possibility that there could be benefit even <laughs> from a timber extraction perspective right limited benefit but benefit nonetheless 
And this is an idea that needs to be explored. Yeah. I love this idea of bringing more natural history and evolutionary ecology into the mix. Cause I mean, that's kin selection, like you said, in a system where, oh, I don't need to die for my, or my offspring to live. I just need to get them to a point where they can handle themselves and using that, working with that instead of against it for just purely surface area. Let's just cut these. But I mean, just the fact that they, they're growing efficiently, they're being subsidized, but then you know, the the nature of this is that they're not necessarily slowing down later in life either, right? No, no. The, the thing that's amazing is that the, the rate of wood production or biomass production in a tree is, is very closely related to the amount of leaves it has. Mm-hmm. So the more photosynthetic capacity a tree has, the more wood it makes annually. That's generally true. Eventually, you know, the tree will get so big and old that it'll start falling apart because the slowly advancing decay fungi will lead to structural collapse. And you do see this. I've been clambering out in the woods a lot lately. It's a, it's a long story, but we've been <laughs> going to random locations. And we've been seeing a lot of these old relics out there, trees that have really collapsed, mm-hmm. redwoods that are sort of the past their peak and they're beginning to decline. And this is true of all earthlings, <laughs> all of them. I mean, they, the trees that can live for thousands of years, eventually they will fall apart. Right. You know, but they can persist in other ways like some of these old relics they might have like one little sinuous bit of live bark that's creeping up one side of what looks like mostly a snag and there's a live branch or a little reiteration (laughs) it's still hanging on love that but then they'll have sprouts come or reiterated trunks that are coming out of the base or from roots so really the genetic individual hasn't perished even if the thing finally completely collapses but yeah, they, they have a lot of staying power. And even the ones that are completely beat up are still alive. Yeah. And Redwood's what, particularly good at that, though. I mean, more so than other trees. Redwood's sure. kind of a freak that way. But what I, what, what, what I really admire about this is that, you know, you've put in so many hours, so much effort, and, and a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, I'm sure, in this process. But it is so clear that the the sense of awe you have for these organisms and for the ecosystems they create just hasn't waned. And and that's, to me, some of the best science is when the passion remains and drives these questions because, I mean, this, the experiments you're setting up today to really know how they're affecting, as much as we all would love to, we're not going to live another hundred years, right? This is stuff that others are going to have to pick up. And I would you say that that sort of awe and sense of wonder for these organisms that have been here before us and will outlive most of us listening today we need to understand them. We need to set up times now so that down the road, we don't make the same mistakes of the past. Agreed. Well, you know, it's cool that the, because of the way we study them, we climb them, we might collect a few core samples, which doesn't do any harm to the tree. We measure them intensively and then we, we climb down, we leave them alone. <laughs> and in the future, they're still there to consult. How you doing? Yeah. How's, how, you were measured 150 years ago by this crazy biologist, Sillet. How much <laughs> wood have you made since then? You know, they're still there. Almost right. every one of these 235 trees in this current study is still there, yeah. still still doing its thing. And we have a lot we can learn from them. And I think, you know, the exciting part is that if we designate, if we have a landscape that's got pets, trees are potential elders that are allowed to live out their lives. Those trees are going to continue to accumulate biomass and biodiversity for centuries. So the, the, the decisions we make now about the distribution of, of trees that are going to become part of the permanent inventory mm-hmm. are going to be manifested on this landscape for centuries. And these days, you know, you can walk through the woods with your iPhone and you can pretty much track yourself. <laughs> it's easy. So there's no reason why we can't designate trees and have them be on the inventory. So when the timber harvest crew is going out and they're doing their mark for the trees that are going to be removed from the stand for timber production, which is essential. Mm-hmm. They should have, there's no excuse why they can't know which trees are designated as retention trees to become elders. There's yeah. no reason in the world. Totally. And so the technology is here. We just have to do the designations, you know, right. and we have to monetize some of these values and we can do that with carbon credits to some extent. Sure. But there's a lot more values that haven't yet been considered, and that is the habitat values of these big trees. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think 
people are slowly getting wind of this biodiversity loss and, and how it truly, you know, whether you look at this as cynical or just practical, how it affects our lives. And I think the argument that you and your colleagues are putting forward in these these articles and these papers is a very sensible one. It's not charged politically or socially. It is very reasonable approaches, data to back them up. And I think it's one of those, you get the right people in the room with level heads and a, a, just a rational, passionate conversation about this. It's a win for a lot of camps. You just got to get it the is. camps not trying to cut each other's throats every right. two seconds. Well, you know, there's there's a full spectrum of options available to us when we manage forests. One option is just to recreate an old growth forest environment and to try to rebuild it. Mm -hmm. And management geared towards that. And, and there's huge sections of, say, Redwood National Park, like 80% of which was, was tractor logged before mm. it was created as a park. Did you know that? The vast majority didn't realize of that number. Park, it's logged over. It's totally logged over. Damn. So they're going in and they're through this various initiatives, one of which is called Redwoods Rising. And they're trying to, through silviculture, accelerate the development of a primary forest characteristic in these landscapes. So that's one thing where those forests are never going to be used commercially. That's one extreme. Right. The other extreme is the primary emphasis is timber extraction because we need wood products in the market. We need jobs. For people who do this work, it's essential. Well, even in that model, a few trees per acre, even if it's just one tree per <laughs> acre that is designated to become part of the permanent inventory, you would then have a landscape where when you looked across the county, you wouldn't be embarrassed by how short this forest is. <laughs> I'm telling you, dude, I've looked at like all of Sonoma County and Mendocino County. It's like, oh my God, I can't believe how short it is. It's all short. Well, let's get some of the tall trees back. Right. And how quickly can that be done? And I don't know if you noticed in the latest article, we put some numbers on that. Yeah. How quickly can a tree achieve certain size thresholds? Well, it turns out if you promote them in the right way, can you can have a 200 foot tall tree in less than 100 years. Right. So we could actually regrow re tall forests on the landscape, even in forests where we're doing timber extraction. Totally. And this isn't just some pie in the sky idea. There's people who are actually implementing some of this right now good so there's i think there's 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 reason to be encouraged but part of it is just getting over the concern that uh land managers might have for removing part of the inventory yeah like part of the growing space no longer dedicated for timber extraction there's got to be other ways where we can value that right. approach even if it's just a few trees per acre that are going to be designated as such yeah well, I mean, I think the world fame of places like the Redwood Forests, the fact that people, whether they love plants and trees or botany or don't care about any of it, will travel to see these spectacles. And a 200-foot tree is bigger than most trees in most places. I mean, a branch on one of those is bigger than any tree I grew up looking at. So there is so many incentives just in the people want to come and see this stuff to want to get some oh. of that back. I agree with you on that, but I think that a lot of people haven't really seen examples Fair. of regenerating or secondary forests that are impressive. Right. And the reason for that is that the vast majority of the forest land that was initially cleared of old growth and has regrown has been logged again at least once. Mm -hmm. So repeated logging has kept these trees short. There are very few examples of what's called mature secondary forest. There's a really great example of it right behind my house here in Arcata. It's called hmm. the Arcata Community Forest. And it has 140 to 150 year old secondary forests with lots of big trees. And it's being managed in a way that allows these trees to continue to gain stature. And there are other examples, but people need to see this. And there's not a lot of good examples where hmm. people can walk into a secondary forest and be like wow this is freaking impressive yeah. but you know it's funny because i've i've had visitors come in and we go for a walk in the community forest and they're like wow this is amazing <laughs> so yeah and this is only 140 years 150 years old wow now let's go up to prairie creek you want to be amazed but, <laughs> but the thing of it is people need to see that there's this capacity yeah of these redwood forests to regenerate and become impressive in their own right in a human time frame yeah but that's why I think conversations like this help, because as we kind of hinted at or we're, we're talking about before we hit go, uh, 
you know, it's one thing to put in the effort to write these papers and, and share them with your colleagues and, and build a better emphasis on the science and the potential economic benefits there. But it's another to have these conversations so that more people can hear this because you know better than the layperson just reading an article on the internet what's going on out there. But to hear the passion come through and to hear someone that deeply cares about these trees and the, and the, and the ecosystems they're part of talk about this in a sensible way I think opens that door to say okay maybe we can have some wiggle room here maybe we can explore these ideas and open up the door so that that next town hall meeting is a little less aggressive maybe <laughs> well yeah I mean I think part of it is just recognizing that we all love trees and forests the folks who are cutting them down and processing them in the mill love trees and forests mm-hmm. the folks that are trying to save every last tree from the chainsaw love trees and forests we have a lot of common ground here. Right. And there's a lot of wiggle room. And I'm not alone. There's a bunch of folks who are aware of the tremendous capacity of secondary forests to become great again. And they're trying to do it. Even folks who are dedicated to the timber industry. I've talked to quite a few of them who are who are one of their goals is to have a bigger and better forest available for future generations, even if it's being logged selectively right so it's there are we just need to get more examples of this before people so they can realize that these are some options right and there's people in the parks and reserves who are just as passionate about this as i am and they're trying to do it right now it's going on good but there isn't there hasn't been a you know when i publish a scientific paper (laughs) like the one i just sent you it's a bit like screaming into the void it's like it goes out into this into the scientific literature and then it disappears. It's like right. you might get like a, a mention on Google News if you're lucky <laughs> for like a week. Yeah. And that's it. Yeah. But there's this there's this sense that uh, is what we're doing making a difference. And I think we do need more communication. We do need people to realize some of these possibilities. Definitely. But I mean, you, your colleagues, uh, your wife have all done amazing things. All are really great orators of this science, all really passionate. And it's intoxicating to be around people like that. And so if people listening want to find out more about your work, maybe read and get up to speed so that they have that foundation of knowledge to bring to these conversations to have a more nuanced discussion about this sort of stuff, where do they go looking? Good question. (laughs) I mean, we just recently, we tried to publish like a kind of a translation of that major article. Um, there's this thing online called Science X, and it gives uh, scientists an opportunity to try to boil down the essential messages of their article. So we took a 30,000 word article <laughs> and boiled it down to a thousand words. And, you know, it showed up on the news for a couple of days, you know, sure. and there it is. Right. Um, but, you know, there's other organizations like the Save the Redwoods League is dedicated to the conservation of redwood forests. And they're becoming more and more interested in this kind of restoration management. So there's there are organizations where people can get involved. So it's I think people just have to know where to look. There's also a bunch of people who are interested in planting redwoods beyond their native range. Mm. You know, as the climate warms and dries in California, the redwood range could shift north. Right. So in Oregon, Washington, British Columbia, there's plenty of places where coast redwoods would thrive. And people are planting them and they're thriving. <laughs> so, and even overseas, I mean, you should see the redwoods on this, on the North Island of New Zealand, dude. There's some beautiful <laughs> trees. And the thing about New Zealand, they don't have a summer drought. Oh, so those trees just grow gangbusters Monsters. year round. I mean, I've seen some amazing redwood plantations in New Zealand. And there's in the United Kingdom, I've seen some awesome redwoods. So mm-hmm. there, it's happening. But yeah, there people there needs to be some way of getting folks together so we could start talking about this and try to implement it at a scale that would actually be meaningful. Right. Well, it starts with conversations and people getting fired up. So let's hope this you know goes out. And as always, I'll put in all the links and and concentrate it in one spot so people don't have to put in the effort. But Dr. Sillett, this has been phenomenal. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Uh, we really appreciate it, and we really appreciate the work you put in to understand them all. Well, I appreciate it. Thanks a lot for talking with me and. I appreciate you also sharing the the links. I mean, maybe have people start with a science sex article. Perfect. And, and then from way. there, maybe, <laughs> maybe dig a little bit deeper from there. Yeah. yeah, it's you're hitting the right audience. So yeah, the, that'll get some good traction. But again, thank you for your time. All right. Take care. Cheers. Bye bye.
All right, amazing stuff. If you have never seen a redwood, giant sequoia, dug fir, or eucalyptus in your life, make a point to get out and see these trees. Pictures do not do them justice, and the ecosystems they comprise are just phenomenal. Uh, we need to do everything we can to manage them better, and Dr. Sillett's work is proof that it is possible and it can satisfy a lot of needs, not just one or two desirable processes. The point of the matter is that we have to do it better, and, and work like this really helps move that needle forward. I thank Dr. Sillett for taking time out of his busy schedule to talk with us, and go check out the articles we talked about. I put links in the show notes over at indefensiveplants.com slash podcast. Do that work justice by reading it. You will learn phenomenal facts about these trees and how we can manage them better. While you're over there, consider supporting the show. Support helps me keep this show up and running. It helps me release it each and every week to you for free. You can do that by becoming a patron over at patreon.com slash plants. You can pick up a copy of my book, which is 30% off through Mango Publishing, the publisher. I'll put up a link to that as well. You can also pick up some of our customizable merch and stickers. Speaking of support, I want to thank the latest producer on this podcast. A big thank you goes out to Randy, who signed up to become a patron at the producer credit level. So they are doing the maximum each and every month to ensure this show has a future. Thank you so much, Randy. But that is it for me this week. Thank you all for listening. Once again, check out indefensiveplants.com slash podcast for all of the relevant links for everything we talk about. And until next time, hang in there, stay healthy, and get outside if you can. This is your host, Matt, signing out. Adios, everyone.